Welcome to Trailblazing, capitalizing on tax receivable agreements, a Parallaxis Capital podcast that is here to guide you through the world of tax receivable agreements. It's time for Trailblazing. In today's episode, we have the privilege of diving into the intricate world of tax receivable agreements with a true luminary in the field. Joining us today is Eric Sloan, partner at Gibson Dunn and co-chair of the firm's tax practice group. With over three decades of experience, Eric is an expert in transactional and structuring matters, especially with respect to partnerships. Eric's reputation as a thought leader is underscored by his band one rating on Chambers USA amongst a career filled with many other accolades. He was also involved in the very early days of TRAs. In this conversation, we unravel the complexities of tax receivable agreements, exploring their growth and role in diverse transactions, and gaining insights from Eric's wealth of experience and expertise. I also know Eric has a lot of great stories, so I'm sure this will be a fun journey. Eric, welcome to our podcast. Great. So thanks again, Eric, for joining us today. I'd love to start at the beginning of your journey. So what initially sparked your interest in tax law? How did you find your way into this funky field? Well, it actually started because I thought it would be a good way to effectuate social policy. It's something that Congress does from time to time, incentivizes behavior through the tax code. And I just thought that would be an interesting way to blend my interest in social issues with my interest in uh, finance. So that led me into tax. And then in law school, I went to the University of Chicago for law school, and there was a really fabulous tax professor named Wally Blum, who was a real titan of the field in his generation, helped craft the modern income tax. And I heard he was a great teacher, so I took the class and just sort of kept going from there. Got it. And was there a particular kind of like social goal that you were maybe focused on in those early stages with like cigarette taxes or something like that? It was really much more about redistribution of wealth and redistribution of income from people who have a lot to people who you know don't for all sorts of historic reasons. And then housing as well. I've always been interested in housing. Got it. Have your views changed on any of those matters? Especially, I mean, housing is certainly one where I feel like this has been a very ongoing debate. I, redistribution as well. but Yeah, I, I think for a while I became convinced that the tax code was actually a bad way to, to do what I was originally interested in just because of the complexity and using the IRS to do something that perhaps should be done differently. But I'd say recent, much more recently in looking at what's going on with Pillar 2 and the way the U.S. continues to use the tax code and just thinking about the transferability of tax credits as well, and continuing to put the IRS in the middle of all of that. I think that using the IRS and then accounting firms through the audit function, which is tied up with tax as well, to enforce and essentially police what could otherwise be the wild, wild west. Maybe my much younger self was right for completely wrong reasons, but was right in that the IRS and pulling in the accounting firms to help police things as well, like the IRS recently did with Ricks and Reits claiming losses. Uh, if it ties to financial statements, I think that was 
Absolutely. So the IRS wouldn't have to police that and just let outsource that to the audit function of accounting firms. So I'm beginning to think that maybe it makes sense again for all sorts of reasons. And probably there's going to be some type of global war with the OECD to figure out how credits work in your tax system. So, yeah, I continue to think it's interesting. I mean, it almost sounds like you were at the very forefront of tax as an ESG type. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, completely by accident. And I'm sure people were doing it for generations before. There's a really famous piece written by Wally Blum and Harry Calvin, I want to say, University of Chicago professors, called The Uneasy Case for Progressive Taxation, which I read when I was in law school. And it talked about that, about how, you know, as an economic and tax policy matter, does progressive taxation can be justified. And so they they wrote that piece, justifying progressive taxation. Got it. Also a little interesting, because I wouldn't necessarily think of Chicago, University of Chicago economics as being on that side of the spectrum. So it's kind of nice to see it was well balanced. (laughs) I think they, when they wrote that piece, it was before the rise of Certainly, law and economics, and you know, which was born in Chicago. I think some people say at Yale, but Chicago and Yale. I think it was they wrote it before that. But yes, they were. I mean, I don't think I ever met Harry Calvin, but Paul Blum was fabulous, super smart guy. Awesome, awesome. And I realize I did get a little sidetracked on law and economics now, personal interest. But I guess maybe taking it back. So, like over your career, what would you say is one of the most exciting or memorable transactions you've worked on from a tax perspective. And I know this is a TRA podcast. It certainly doesn't have to be about tax receivable agreements. Well, it's been a pretty long career and I've been lucky to have worked on a whole lot of interesting things. Some I didn't even realize how interesting they were at the time. When I was a very young associate, I worked on a REIT transaction that I barely understood. And as it turned out, it was one of the very first upreads, which I only realized later when I was looking back, at, when I was working on some of the early upseason, convinced people to do upseas. I dug in to the history of upreads and realized that it was the MacArthur Glen upread. It was one of the very, very first ones. As I said, at the time, I didn't understand the significance and certainly didn't understand what was going on in the transaction. There were some transactions that were private. They were super fascinating, but sadly, I can't talk about. But of the public ones, I've represented Lazard for a long time. So I was involved with Lazard in its IPO, which was the first, what we think of currently as an upseed. We didn't call it that back in the day, with a TRA. There had been a couple before that, but it was the first with a TRA. And so that was really fun. Again, a bit... At the time, I understood how important it was, but it was really later because I managed just, we get lucky with where we sit and the people we know. And I happened to be sitting at Deloitte with the right client base, with people who wanted to do interesting things. And so I managed to get involved with some of the early UPSEs and TREs, and I negotiated some of the early provisions. And so those were really fun. And then by the time GoDaddy came around, which I was one of the people structuring GoDaddy, that was really fun. It was a big, big company. Everybody knew who it was. And it brought together things that I've been working on for a long, long time. But I will say, actually, negotiating the first PRA for a blocker court, which, again, I had no idea it was the first time. It's one of the early upseas. So you know, if you're busy, I don't think you spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, this has never been done before. I later found out 
Someone told me. Never, I've never tried to verify, but someone told me that was the first time. And having the person on representing the underwriters telling me that they thought it was inappropriate. <laughs> and explaining to them that really NOLs are just more mature basis. And I didn't see why confronting a tax asset at a different point in its life cycle should matter. And that was super fun. Yeah. So, I mean, you've certainly been there from the very beginning of TRAs, especially with Lazard. How has it changed in terms of how clients view TRAs, both the companies, the interested parties, as you mentioned, the underwriters? I have to imagine they've gotten more comfortable with it, but what were things like in those early days? Well, at first, with Lazard, as I was saying, I did not propose the TRA. Lazard and I had essentially worked through the upsea structure, but it was absolutely Goldman Sachs that, that suggested the TRA. I remember when they when the company called me and said, oh yeah, there's this thing that Goldman had proposed. At, back in the day, they were called ITR agreements, income tax receivable agreements, and morphed to be called a TRA. But in the early days after that, working with a couple of private equity firms, they got it. You know, explaining it to the underwriters um, and underwriters counsel in the first few was a little difficult because they hadn't seen it before and just explaining to them that you know, once you're precedent, everything rolls downhill from there. But working with companies when they started to do it and then with their tax departments and explaining to them that this was – because I, actually very recently I had someone ask me, well, what's in it for the company? And I said, well, there is this 15%, but you're not the one being benefited by this. This is going to lead to more compliance work for you. And this is for the benefit of the pre-IPO owners. It's their company. And this is a way of ensuring they get paid adequately for the value they're delivering. And so walking through that dynamic, as the major investment banks figured it out, sometimes you run teams at the investment bank that would be hostile to it. And you would just have to basically direct them to their colleagues who had worked on it before. And then as the accounting firms all began to figure it out and built up teams, it's now very much a process. And quite frankly, now pretty much anybody can do an upsee. My fear about that is people download forms from Edgar, and I think they don't really understand them. Um, and I, I worry about that. Yeah, I read every time I work on one, I just, I never ask someone, people say, oh, here's a black line from the precedent. And, and I always say, unless it's one of my precedent, I'm not comforted by the fact that this moved through some law firms and accounting firms. I, I want to make sure I understand because although TRAs generally look alike, there's some pretty strange stuff that you can find under the hood in some TRAs. The devil, certainly in the details, I'm sure you appreciate we read a ton of TRAs here. And Eric, I will say, there is a flavor to the TRAs that you have drafted. I feel like I can identify that pretty, pretty easily. And just out of curiosity, I mean, so you talked about, I mean, maybe it was the early stages, but that hostility coming from certain parts of the banking process, was that a focus on marketability or a, a concern about the IPO success and execution, or was it coming from somewhere else, just a fear of the unknown almost? I think all, all three very much interrelated, right? With most tax lawyers never want to do something that 10 other people have done. We all want to do something 
well, most of us want to do something no one else has ever done. For someone to say, oh, here's all this precedent, I think, well, I'll let someone else work on that because I'd rather work on something that hasn't been done before, or at least I haven't done before. I think bankers, there are some bankers, very creative bankers, who like solving problems. A lot of people just want to get the deal done. Now, I, that sounds disparaging to bankers. Find lawyers like that as well. Um, I don't mean it to be disparaging. But a lot of bankers, there's an IPO to happen. The, everyone is interested in getting that deal done. And if something is different at all, everyone's going to focus on the difference. And a TRA that no one has heard of before or is not used in that industry, I still get that question. Okay, we know there are hundreds of these out there. Has it ever been used in this industry before? And I have an industry agnostic practice, so I never know why people care, but it is because the bankers are going to look at the documents for the last deal that was done in that industry, and they're not going to see a TRA, and they're going to say, well, the market is going to stare at that, think something's off. But one by one, I remember one of the very first it may have been the first after Lazard. I was on the phone with the CFO for the company. There's a major law firm I was working with on this. I was back at Deloitte at the time. So the law firm talked about how they would do the IPO. And I said, we could do it that way. Or we could do it this other way, what is now known as an UPC. And I walked the CFO through it. And he was supremely uninterested in the complexity that I was going to bring to his structure, notwithstanding that I told him that Lazard had just done this. And I said, well, and there's this other thing. And it described the TRA and one of my really outstanding partners at Deloitte had done very simple math. And, and we said, and we think on a present value basis, we'd have to, you know, it depends on a lot of things, probably adds 10 to 15% to what you all are going to take at the end of the day. And there is a silence. And then the CFO said, Let's do it Eric's way. That is super fun. Um, and I think ultimately it comes to that. People understand that there's simply a lot of value. And if you don't get paid for it, you're giving it away to somebody else. I guess on that, on that note then, so are there any specific challenges, considerations that still arise when you advise on the UPC structure? I continue to find it an interesting and difficult dynamic. Because on the one hand, you want to put together a TRA that is going to be something that you, your firm, or others like you can market because everybody's interested in that. I mean, I remember in the early days, right, people were saying, well, one of these days a market will develop. It took a long time, right? So you want to do that and make it marketable, make it really friendly. On the other hand, the, the conflict or the tension between that and making it something that does not turn into a nightmare for the company to administer and being the person who has to identify all those issues and essentially is looked to to provide the appropriate balance. You know, that is challenging and fun and something I, I still struggle with explaining to everybody in a way that everybody can follow because you everybody's very sophisticated, but they're sophisticated in very different things. And I remember on one deal, the general counsel of one company, I was explaining to him how we were going to make this transferable, and he said, no, you're not. And I looked at him and said, oh, you're all these good reasons. And he said, no, 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 I, I don't care. I don't want 100 people holding this thing because I can't do that. And so that's where we began to limit. It was in that deal. We limited the number of transferees. And that can get extremely bespoke in who can transfer to how many people and how many times and 
what access do they get to you know, to the underlying rights in the agreement and the like, which I'm sure you know better than I do. Yeah. And as I mean, with all things, I view that as effectively a balancing. It's not ideal for anybody if the TRA goes from 50 holders to 1,000 holders. So certainly sympathetic to that, but also it's challenging in terms of liquidity then. Right. And explaining to someone who I think should be the TRA representative why they would ever take that on. Yeah. How are they replaced? There are all these different decision points in in every agreement, but in a TRA, there are just so many different decision points that when you first read a TRA, you'd never think there's any significance to those points. I guess where do you see TRAs going from here then? The market's grown substantially in the last 20 years. What do you think the next 20 years will look like? And I'm also thinking back to how you push these into blockers and things of that nature. Where do you see it growing? You know, with the reduction in rates, they're less valuable. And upsees, I think people now understand upsees for the most part. This is something we tried to explain to people back in the day, but are largely transition, transitional structures uh, rather than the permanent state for a company. Not saying they couldn't be. There are all sorts of good reasons to maintain the partnership. Beneath, but I think most people think that over time they go away. I certainly think in the upsea, there's no reason for them to diminish. And the tax assets, and that's a term that you know we sort of swapped out early on, the tax assets, they're now so all-encompassing. I do think people are beginning to pay a little more attention to how far removed from reality the tax benefit payment is, right? Because there are all sorts of notional calculations taking place. And I think there is, so I think, I think over the next handful of years, people are going to focus on that and making sure that a public company is not paying for, for more than it is actually receiving as a result of notional calculations. But to your point, I don't know how much they can expand beyond the UPSI. I mean, there are distribution TRAs. Um, people use different terms for those. But I see even in private transactions, just the fact that TREs are out there, they're pushing the private market as well. And that, that's episodic in private M&A when people pay for tax assets. But just having that out there as something everybody knows about makes it difficult on the buy side to just say, no, 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 we're not paying for everything, for anything. And so you typically see at least a discussion. Oftentimes, buy side will say, we, we took that into account. That's in the price. In the price we paid you is the value of the tax assets. Please don't, please don't ask for more. But encourages the discussion. Definitely, definitely. Where do you see, I mean, do you have any thoughts on where the secondary market is going for TRAs? We're certainly biased on that question, but always curious. Yeah, you know, I've worked on a couple of those. I think that as it's, especially in the private equity space, people don't want to hold these things forever. So I, I, I thought from day one, and I continue to believe that's going to be the most fruitful place, is private equity firms that want to exit, you know, wrap up funds. Private equity firms don't like to have funds sitting there holding very little. And so just being able to say to people, you can exit. I know that companies really like to buy them in, which doesn't work as well for you all. But I know that companies have a, have a keen interest after some period of time in just saying it's enough. There's not enough value here. So let's just terminate them. You know, I, I can't really comment on the litigation. I mean, I, I'm not involved in any of it. Some of the things that I read just don't resonate with me at, at all. But I do think that they can, they are a damper on M&A. And so I think that 
right, wrong, and different. I mean, it's just a reality. If you're looking at a company that you think is worth $100, but it's got a TRA liability of 20, you're not going to pay the equity holders 100, you're going to pay the make. So I think that people are focusing a lot more on that and how that impacts TRA in the secondary market. I'm not sure, but I think it will have an impact on the secondary market because it is awkward for companies when they have people holding the TRA who don't hold equity. It would not surprise me to see more flexibility built into TRAs in connection with third-party M&A trends. I don't know how that would affect underwriting, probably not terrifically well. Yeah, we're certainly not um, in the M&A arbitrage space, but realizing no specific thoughts or unable to maybe give specific thoughts on the litigations themselves, but do you see any other major challenges in the TRA spaces today? I don't really... People seem seem very familiar with them. The accounting firms have built up groups that can sort of figure everything out. I mean, I remember, again, in the early days, getting a friend of mine to actually do the TRA calculation. He was in another accounting firm. That was a lot of work. But now they're geared up for it. And the documentation, as I said, there are differences here and there. So it, it just seems to sort of move along. So I'm sure there are challenges. I'm not thinking that's one of the things that keeps what we do so interesting, but not really. Other than just thinking about what assets and how do you, you know, this is actually one interesting thing I think that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about is protecting the TRA holder from restructurings. All sorts of companies can do all sorts of things that can reduce their tax liability, making TRA less valuable. And, you know, I've worked on a couple where we didn't prevent restructuring, but we we essentially said, this is the company. And if you do something, that's fine, but it's not going to affect the TRA calculation, which then makes it less interesting for the company to undergo, not uninteresting entirely, but less interesting for the company to undergo a restructuring. And so I think that, uh, and I've worked on a few things where I think the TRA holders were surprised that things could be done that would denude the TRA value. So I think people are going to be focusing on that more. Definitely. And I guess just shifting gears a bit then, on a more personal note, what would you say is the trickiest part of your job today? Well, that's one of the great things about being a tax lawyer, right, is so much is tricky about it. There's the aspect, for example, with partnership tax, I mainly focus on slowing down and making sure that I'm not missing something because I know Subchapter K really, really well. But the danger, and once you know something really, really well, is thinking that you know the whole thing and that you won't misapply it. So slowing down. But I'd say having moved from an accounting firm to a law firm, the the practice is simply broader. For every individual lawyer at a law firm, you're just doing more different things. And so making sure as you move from task to task that you're giving everything the appropriate level of focus. I have always found just the pausing thinking and making sure that I'm not moving too quickly. For me personally, the most challenging aspect of the job, and again, it's one thing I really like about it. Technically, right now, the most challenging thing, I don't know if that's where the question was going, is absolutely uh, Camp T in Pillar 2. I mean, just, I hope Camp T dies a quick death because of <laughs> Pillar 2 is going to be coming upon us. And so technically, just dealing with that and think about how that's going to impact uh, M&A and just regular planning for companies is definitely the most technically challenging. And you're certainly 
not alone in those wishes. So, and again, like you've accomplished almost all there is now in tax law, to put it politely. Like what continues to drive you, motivate you every day? Is there a particular goal that you're passionate about? Well, I mean, well, I appreciate that. I mean, I like almost every aspect of what I do. You hear people saying all the time, especially when I was younger, I hear people say this, and it, it, but it's true, is working with training younger people. I've been incredibly fortunate to work with just some super talented associates throughout my career. Almost all of them, actually, I count as very good friends and many of whom are leaders in the profession now. And that's really just fun. When you're working with someone and you've been working with them for a few years and all of a sudden you hear them say something and you hear echoes of yourself and echoes of people who trained you, someone you've trained, but they say it in a different way that's actually better than the way that you would have said it. Or when a corporate partner of mine says to me, yeah, we want your assistant. We don't need you on this call. I mean, that, that's success. And at this point in my career, that truthfully means it means everything. I know I'm very technical and I've been really lucky, but that right now, that, that really means everything. And helping my firm, all law firms are changing and trying to reach goals and helping the tax practice at my firm lead the way. We like to think we're leading the way or what my firm is seeking to accomplish is, you know, it remains fun. Got it. And I'm sure the, the, those associates are pretty lucky to be under your wing in terms of training and experience and everything. But one of my associates said to me, working with me many times was like working with a trainer that you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, really? But then when you're done, <laughs> you're like, I'm so glad I did that. So I think he's probably right. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly demanding, but expect a lot of myself. And so I want to pass that on. Maybe not immediately after, but when you look back on in a day and you're a little sore and you feel the better for it, it's probably a good feeling. Exactly. And hopefully we can close with our standard lighter question that I always like to ask. But imagine you've been granted the ability to time travel for just a day. Where, when would you go? And if you're choosing to meet your younger self, like what piece of advice would you give them or to somebody else in that time period? Well, yeah, I mean, it, keeping it light, right? I mean, truthfully, I'd love to go back and um, see what my wife was like as a young teenager. Because I met her, we, we were both in our 30s when I met her. And so we didn't really, you know, it's not like we met in college and grew up together. So I'd, I'd, love, to, <laughs> I'd love to just sort of be around and, and watch that just because she's wonderful and super smart. And I'd love to see how she was, uh, how she interacted with other people at, at that age. Is it, you know, if I were going back and could talk to my younger self, I, as, as wonderful as my career has been, and I, I went directly from Northwestern to the University of Chicago Law School and worked out fabulously, I would say, take some time off between college and law school. And that's what I'm telling all of my kids. And when I say take time off, I don't mean, I mean, actually, I mean, just don't go direct, don't go directly to law school, because as great as it is, it's just such a special time. And you can learn so much. One of my kids just finished college and he moved out to San Francisco and he's an investigative journalist. And I just think that sounds super interesting. He may do that the rest of his life. Maybe I'll end up doing something different, but just take time because it's, it's, a, it's a very long career and taking three, four or five years and trying other things. That's the only thing I would say to my younger self is as great as this career has been so far. 
I wish I had anticipated the incredibly sweet response about your wife. I would have tried to maybe time this for a Valentine's Day <laughs> release. I'll see what we can do on that front. I guess, what are the, uh, do you think any of your kids are going to go into tax then or follow, follow your footsteps in some way? Tax, I would be surprised. I think law, very possibly. Um, my wife is also a lawyer. She, she represents She's a general counsel of a labor union, uh, big labor union, and represents artists and uh, does a lot of pro bono work. I think they will lean more towards that than towards what I do. But you, know, you never know. I was mentioning my son. He's now doing a lot of work with uh, mergers and acquisitions and antitrust and actually now understands why people find things interesting. I mean, that's one thing I said to them. I said to all of them is they think that people who do what it is we do because it's all ultimately finance and money driven. That's what motivates us. And it's, it's, you know, you'll see there are a lot of extremely bright people in finance. And if it were not interesting, they would find something else to do. So it's nice to see my eldest figuring that out, that it's actually really intrinsically interesting. But tax, I guess I'd be surprised. You never know. I guess the jury's still out there. Well, Certainly appreciate you taking the time, Eric. It's always a pleasure to talk and hopefully we'll have you on again in the near future. Okay, terrific. Thanks so much. Good. Thanks, Eric. Keep riding with us as we blaze the TRA trail by subscribing in your preferred podcast app. Learn more and get in touch at plxcap.com. That's plxcap.com. Information presented is for informational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Parallax's Capital Management LLC's podcast and its associated links offer news, commentary, and generalized research, not personalized investment advice. Nothing on this podcast should be interpreted to state or imply that past performance is an indication of future performance. All investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to consult with a tax professional before implementing any investment strategy. Investment advisory services offered through Parallax's Capital Management LLC are registered investment advisor with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Past performance is not indicative of future results.